Father, we do love you. We love your Son, Jesus Christ, and the work of the Spirit. We love the Spirit and for what the triune God that you have done on our behalf for your great glory. May we not then squander this opportunity to show our love for you by looking to your word with obedient hearts. We want to read it and study it today in a way that would change the way we live, the way we behave. Lord, I pray that this would even mean a true, genuine change in the hearts of those who don't know you. I pray they would indeed see the sign of Jonah ultimately as the preaching of the gospel, which of course finds its ultimate truth in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Bless us now as we look to this and consider these realities. Again, we ask that you change our hearts as we are intent to obey your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I am so blessed, as always, to be with you as we continue our look at the prophet Jonah. Yesterday, as many of you know, we paid our last farewells to Pastor Jim, such a wonderful ceremony here yesterday for such a wonderful pastor. We are so grateful to have benefited from his very long ministry. Indeed, we're blessed to have a few of you, not the least of which is uh, Pastor Lance Quinn all the way from Florida. He's sitting up here with me. He gave a little message yesterday. We're so glad that he's here with us all the way from Florida to uh, celebrate the life of Jim. We are going through the book of Jonah. You cannot study Jonah without pausing to address the fact that Jesus himself identified with Jonah. Of all the prophets for Jesus to have picked, this one's a puzzler, right? I mean, why not Samuel or Elisha or Elijah or better yet, Moses? Moses was the deliverer. Of all the prophets, all these prophets indeed were fundamentally good, faithful, though flawed. Jonah, on the other hand, was fundamentally flawed and hardly faithful. He's known for a ministry that is flawed at its core throughout. He's known for disobedience, running from God. He's known for his rebellion, even racism. Why in the world would Jesus choose Jonah to identify with? Jesus doing this was so prominent in the minds of the apostles that all of the synoptic gospels record it. Matthew 12 records it. Mark 8 alludes to it, though it's not spelled out specifically. And in Luke 11, has a thorough accounting of it, and that's what we're going to look at, Luke 11. It was Providence that we were in Luke, and I had our reader read it, but I do want us to read it again, because toward the end of my message, I'm going to, going to give you an exposition of these verses, Luke 11, 29 to 32. Before I do that, though, I'm going to give you, we're going to go to seminary this morning, I'm going to give you a basic hermeneutic principle. That's a principle with which you can understand and interpret Scripture. And then the second thing I want to do is talk a little about the incarnation, humiliation specifically, of Jesus Christ, keying in, of course, on Philippians chapter 2. And then we will end up in Luke 11, 29 to 32, which is what you heard read earlier, and I want to read to you now. Listen carefully to the words of Jesus. Verse 29, Luke 11, when the 
crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. As Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. This is the word of the Lord. Say it with me. Praise be to God. There are in a number of important folks in history, indeed Christian history, with the name Eusebius. There was an early pope with that name. In fact, it was the birth name that was given to St. Jerome, the one who interpreted the Latin Vulgate. That was his birth name. But the Eusebius I want to mention today is a fellow known as Eusebius of Caesarea. He was born in the late 200s and pastored in the early 300s. And indeed, above all else, he was a pastor of a church. That's what he did. He preached on a weekly basis. He ministered to people. I assume he did funerals, maybe even weddings if they did it back then. But Eusebius was also an academic. He was a scholar, and he's actually known as the first historian in Christianity. There were other people like Josephus and others who had recorded Christian stuff. They were more like generic historians. But Eusebius is, in fact, known as the father of Christian history. He sat down and began to pen the story of Christianity. Well, this Eusebius made an observation about the Bible, and it's one of those things, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Sort of like the Trinity. Once that concept is observed and made clear to you, you can hardly turn a page of the Bible where you can't find an artifact of the Trinity. It's everywhere you go. And even if you, you get a committee of people together, like the Jehovah's Witness, and try to extricate the Trinity from the Bible, it's impossible to do. It's on every page of Scripture. You see it even at the very beginning, the first few words of the Bible as God speaks of Himself in the plural. Well, what Eusebius observed, it's not as vital as the Trinity, but it's one of those things that's so obvious in Scripture that once you see it, you cannot unsee it. He called it the munis triplex, translated the threefold function or the threefold task. Some refer to it as triperspectivalism. Or better than that, the thing that you can remember is the three offices of Christ. You see, if you started with the word Christ, the name Christ, the title Christos in the Greek, Hamashiach in the Hebrew, it simply means anointed one. And throughout the Old Testament, there were three offices that were anointed, prophet, priest, and king. What Eusebius noted is that Jesus perfectly fulfilled all of these offices. Indeed, all the people who filled those offices before Christ were shadows of Christ who would come and fulfill those offices, those roles perfectly. Moses, as you might remember, is the one whom God revealed the law, the governing principles of the people of Israel. And he was directed by God to anoint the first priest. He anointed Aaron, his brother, the first 
high priest. You can read about this in Exodus 29 and Exodus 30. Read about it in Leviticus 8. And of course, it was such a beautiful moment. Uh, King David wrote a song about it. Psalm 133, the anointing of Aaron. This was God's anointed man. As a priest, he would mediate. He would act on behalf of the people of God. He would also act on behalf of God to the people. He would speak to God about the people. He would speak to the people about God. And it's not that the people could not speak directly to God. They, you know, Jews have always believed in a personal God, but there was a priest there to mediate the covenant to the people of Israel. The high priest and all the priests collectively would do this. These anointed men would mediate this relationship. Specifically when it came to worship and sacrifices, that's what these priests did. Aaron, however, and all the priests were but shadows. They were pictures of the coming mediator, the great high priest, Jesus himself. Remember Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Verse 5 of chapter 8, they serve as a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. In the next chapter, chapter 9 of Hebrews, verses 11 and 12, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Later on, verse 24 of the writer of Hebrews says, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So the Old Testament priests were shadows. They offered sacrifices. They mediated God's love and His kingdom to the people of God, but they were shadows. They were pictures. And from the moment Moses began ordaining priests, from the moment he ordained Aaron, they understood themselves to be the shadows of what would come, to be shadows of the ultimate sacrifice who himself would be a priest. Christ came, he offered himself as the full and final sacrifice. He was the ultimate priest. He was the fulfillment of all the priests before them if they understood their role properly. They ultimately served the purpose of foreshadowing the great high priest. Another anointed office was the office of king. Of course, you remember it was an inauspicious start for Israel. The first anointing was the anointing of a false king, man's king, the people's choice, the tall guy, the good-looking fellow, Saul. But eventually, the prophet Samuel would anoint God's man, who was King David. God would tell King David that his offspring, his descendant, this is 2 Samuel 7, would be the ultimate king. And he would be the ultimate divine, true king of Israel. He would be the one who would be worshipped throughout the whole world. And David understood this. David understood that he was a picture of what would come. And we see this. And what would come in his mind was the divine king. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So David always carried with him this self-awareness that 
that he was a shadow. He was a picture of what would come later on in the Messiah, the true anointed one. Their anointment, their anointing, their, cho their choice by God through prophets and others were just a shadow of the one who was truly chosen. Jesus arrived, not only did he come from the proper lineage, and therefore he qualified from a royal standpoint, the royal lineage, he told people about his kingdom. He inaugurated a kingdom. Initially, not a kingdom of this world. You can't see it. It's not physical. He was inaugurating this kingdom, building this kingdom. It was indeed a worldwide kingdom, or is indeed a worldwide kingdom. In fact, the gates of hell cannot prevail against that kingdom. It grows and grows and grows until Christ will return and take up his earthly throne. So you have the priestly office and the priests that all lived before Christ were a shadow. You have the kingly office and all the kings that lived before Christ were a shadow, good or bad. And of course, you could say the same thing about prophets. This was another group of people who were anointed. God told Moses in Deuteronomy 18, beginning, beginning in verse 15, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me hear not again the voice of the Lord or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I'll put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them, speak to them all that I commanded him. And so like the priests and like the kings, all these prophets who came after the initial prophets, they knew and they had that self-consciousness if they understood their role correctly, that they were not the ultimate prophet, they were but a shadow, a precursor to the real thing, that the true prophet would one day come. And this true prophet would not merely speak the word or convey God's message to the people, he would be God and he would be the word of God among the people. Now, this brings us to this first idea. Like I said, we're doing things a little bit different today, more of a theological background. Number one, if you want to write this down, I want you to see Jesus Christ as prophet. The role of the Old Testament prophet was to declare the Word of God. But like I said, Jesus not only declared the Word of God, He was, according to John, He is the Word of God. He's the ultimate revelation of God. He's God incarnate. He's the ultimate communication because He is God. He is Emmanuel. He's God with us. That's why Jesus could say, abide in me and my words in you. Because His words are indeed God's words. That's why He could say without flinching, obey, to obey me is to obey the Father who sent me. It's why He could say, John 8, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am the title of God. My point is, all these anointed men leading to Jesus Christ carried that fundamental understanding that they were a flawed representation of the true thing. They were a shadow of the true thing. Whether they're a prophet, a priest, or a king, they were a shadow of the true prophet, the true priest, and the true king. They knew this. They understood this. It's reflected in their writing. I think 
of Isaiah, the prophet, and his servant songs. Of course, you could say these servant songs, in a sense, are about Israel, the people of Israel. You could also say, well, there are a sense these, these servant songs are about himself, Isaiah, as the prophet. But ultimately, these servant songs are about Jesus. You can look no farther than Isaiah 53, the ultimate prophet. And the ultimate prophet, incidentally, would be treated like true prophets have been treated throughout history. He would be despised and rejected. He would be hated, beaten, and killed. So all the prophets, no matter how imperfect, no matter how shadowy, so to speak, each genuine prophet, including Jonah, was a foreshadowing of the one true prophet, Jesus Christ. Someone asked me this week, didn't Jesus reject the title of prophet? Several times, notably when Peter reported that the people were saying that Jesus was a prophet, didn't Jesus reject that? No, Jesus rejected the shadow prophets. He rejected the title of precursor prophets because that's what they were saying. He's a mere prophet. He's no different than Samuel or Elijah or Elisha or whoever else. Jesus ultimately is the true prophet. He's no mere prophet like Samuel or Isaiah or Moses. He's the prophet to which all the other prophets pointed. And by aligning him with these other prophets, they were deriding him and saying he's no different than any other prophet. Once you see this principle, once you understand this hermeneutic principle, you start to see it on all the pages of Scripture. Jesus fulfilling these things and all the richness that comes as you read the prophets of old and think about the kings of old, that they, if they truly were walking with God, they would understand themselves as a shadow of the coming Messiah. Once you see this principle, you can't unsee it. It's a hermeneutical tool you can use. You can put this in your tool belt that you can use as you study both the Old Testament and the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, specifically for our purposes, it helps us understand Jonah's role. Jonah served to picture Jesus, even if in an imperfect way. Jonah, as a genuine prophet, illustrated, foreshadowed Jesus Christ, the coming true anointed one, the coming true prophet. And we can see this mostly when we consider number two of my message today, the humiliation of Christ. The humiliation of Christ. Philippians 2, many of you know where I'm going with this. It's called the kenosis or kenotic passage, the emptying. It says in verse 7 that Jesus emptied himself, and that's where we get the word kenosis. Important to remember uh, that Jesus didn't lose his identity. He was still divine. He was still holy, still one with God, still God himself. But by virtue of taking on human form, he had to set aside all the expressions all the privileges of being divine. He had to set aside, for instance, his Shekinah glory. He had to set aside his omnipresence. He had to set aside even his omniscience, in a sense. He had to set that aside and learn as a child and be birthed and grow and mature as a child in order to be fully human. All these things were still his. He did not relinquish his ownership of these things, so to speak. They were all still his. We even see glimmers of these things in his ministry, but he had to set these things aside in order to become fully human. And that's what Paul is talking about to the Philippians chapter 2 in verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
Being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love what C.S. Lewis, I think it read it, I read it some years ago when we were going through Philippians, what C.S. Lewis said about the kenosis, the humiliation of Christ. He says this, in the Christian story, God descends, speaking of Jesus, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature He had created. But He goes down to come up again and bring the ruined world up with Him. One has a picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must also disappear under that load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through the green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into a death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. Then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing he went down to recover. Just think with me, Jesus existed in eternal, perpetual, timeless glory. He existed in the utterly perfect triune realm of glory and righteousness and truth, but He came down to ransom us. He came down to the earth and down further still, experiencing humanity, being born as a child, needy, helpless, confined to learning and growing. But He went down even further. He became a servant And further still, He died, and further still, the shameful death of a criminal on a cross, and even further, bearing the sin of shame of of millions, and then even further, He died and was put in a tomb. But He did not descend to never re-ascend. On the third day, He rose victorious over the grave and was exalted over the earth, all the way up to His place at the right hand of of God. Now let's apply this using our hermeneutic of munis triplex. You see the same parabola, right? You see Jonah and Jesus, right? It's right there. Jonah, it says, went down to Joppa. And he went down into the ship, and he went down into the hold of the ship. Then he was thrown overboard, and he was swallowed down into a fish. And that fish, of course, went down deep, Jonah says, to the roots of of the mountains, down, 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 further still. Behind me and to your right is Mount Achaia on the Big Island. Geologists, many of them consider Mount Achaia taller than even Mount Everest because it continues below the water some 19 plus thousand feet 
giving it a total height of more than 33,000 feet. This is the kind of thing that Jonah was thinking of as the pressures were, were coming in on him and that fish was no doubt getting smaller and smaller and pressing in on him, wrapping seaweed around his face, almost no air to breathe. In chapter 2, verse 6, he talks about going down to the roots of the mountains. He no doubt had that idea that he was at the bottom of the earth. And clearly this concept was on his mind. He could feel this pressure all around him. Some folks believe he actually died. We don't have any indication from Jonah that he died, but there's nothing to say that he didn't die. But Jonah is a shadow, an imperfect representation of Jesus Christ's own humiliation. Jonah, of course, was humiliated because of disobedience. Jesus humiliated out of obedience. Jonah went down, down because of his rebellion. Jesus went down because his agreement, his covenant with the Godhead to carry out this magnificent eternal plan. Jonah went down in terms of filth and his own sin. Jesus took other sin and was buried for it. And Jonah rose up, not victorious over the grave. It says at the end of chapter 2, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon dry ground. Talk about an imperfect picture of resurrection. Getting spit up by a fish. Fitting for Jonah, though. I think he deserved it. Well, how do we apply all of this? How do we apply the story of Jonah? We don't have to think too hard about it. It's because Jesus himself applied the story of Jonah. And so let's finally look at Luke 11. And let me give you a very brief explanation of this. Number three, if you're taking notes, this is the sign of Jonah. Look with me there in Luke 11 again. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. Boy, if there ever was a bad church growth pastor, it was Jesus. The crowds start to increase, and he starts to condemn them. What does he mean here to seek a sign? I think there's a couple of possibilities, and the truth is probably some sort of mixture of these two things. First, it could refer to just the general dissatisfaction with the Word of God. It's a form of discontentment. Just reading and obeying God's Word is not enough. No, they want supernatural signs all around them. And so they ask for it, they seek it all the time, they're always looking for some higher experience, some... some experience, metaphysical experience, perhaps even out-of-body experience that they would say it comes from heaven. And I think if they're consumed with this idea of having these experiences and, and having miracles and signs and wonders all around them, they think somehow it validates them. And so oftentimes people in the modern day, I'm sure there was an ancient way of doing this, and sometimes these people began to look for Signs that they're part of the miraculous even when they're not. They take a Tylenol, their headache goes away. It's a miracle. It's providence, and we can thank God for providence. But they try to validate everything, and they eventually become undiscerning and gullible because of 
instead of being absorbed with knowing and believing the truth of God, they're always on this hunt for signs and wonders, and no doubt there were people in that very mystical age in which Jesus ministered were looking for these signs. They wanted miracles and signs and wonders. They sought these things. The second thing it could mean, and this may be even closer to what the truth is, is because uh, it came from the Pharisees, Matthew told us that, is that a demand for signs is out of disbelief and really even mockery. Back in our study of Matthew, we were in chapter 11, and I don't know if you remember this, they sing a little ditty to Jesus. We played the flute for you, you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. They're saying like an organ grinder monkey, you're supposed to perform for us when we clang the cymbals. We're spo- you're supposed to, when we play the organ, you're supposed to do your thing. Show us your signs. Give us another one of your tricks. Kind of like when you find someone who's a little bit of a magician, right? You know, someone who knows a few tricks, you do it again, do it again. Come show my friends, do this, do this trick again. That's what they were doing. That's their attitude. It was a mocking of Jesus Christ. Seeking a sign could be that evil demand for Christ to prove himself or maybe just a dissatisfaction with the Word of God. I think probably both are connected and mixed in with this evil combination here in that whole generation. It's a rejection of faith, which is defined as taking God at His Word. They demanded a sign. Their demanding of a sign meant they were faithless. They rejected God's Word. They rejected God's Son. Well, I came up with a little bit of an alliterated outline for this passage. Maybe you, I didn't put it on the screen, but maybe you want to write these down. Jesus said this generation is evil for seeking signs. So the first point would be this, flee the sin of sign seeking. Flee the sin of sign seeking. That's the first idea. There are, they are faithless. They don't take God at His word. And they're evil by demanding these signs of Jesus. The second idea here is to follow the sign of the Savior. That's what's already already established in the Word. Look at verse 29. No sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. That is to say, I am just an outplaying of what Jonah did. There is already a sign provided for you. The prophet's foreshadowing of me and my ministry. Matthew mentioned, listen carefully, Matthew mentioned this, for just as Jonah, Jesus saying, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So what is this sign of Jonah? Again, looking back at our principle, the offices of Jesus, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the prophets, even Jonah. What is the sign of Jonah? Well, broadly speaking, It is the preaching of faith in God's promises, including repentance, conforming your life around those truths. Specifically, it is faith, those promises include the message of Christ, the fulfilling truth of Jesus Christ, life, humiliation, death, and resurrection. The sign of Jonah is then ultimately the message of Scripture that climaxes with the gospel Namely, the story of Christ's incarnation, His humiliation, His death, His resurrection. Very simply, Jesus is saying, I am not going to jump around and do signs on demand. What I am going to do is fulfill 
what has already been told you, what is already in Scripture, I'm going to fulfill all those biblical prophecies and biblical pictures that foreshadow me, including the fact that I will die and rise again. That's the sign you're going to get. And if you refuse to believe that sign, you are wicked and evil, and you will be judged. You will be condemned. That's why I summarize this, the sign of the Savior. Instead of being obsessed with signs and wonders, instead of being obsessed with God making your life suddenly better, easier, miraculously, instead of all that, just look to Scripture and believe. What you'll discover is all the truths and prophetic stories that will point you to the fact that Jesus Christ of Nazareth is to be believed. He is indeed your Savior. Upon seeing that, believe it and repent. Our objective is to be obsessed not with the miracles that Jesus performed or the abilities of God to work miraculously. We're to be obsessed with Himself, Jesus Himself, God Himself. And the way we do that is we study the Word of God, what He's told us. Follow Him. It's the same message in an incomplete, shadowy way that was presented to the people of Nineveh by Jonah. Follow the sign of the Savior. The third part of the exposition here is this, fear the sentence of the sovereign. Look at verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. And then back to Jonah and Nineveh, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What's happening? Well, Jesus is drawing now on these two Old Testament stories. The first is when the queen of Egypt, Sheba, visited Solomon. He attested to biblical truth to her, and she believed. He preached faith and repentance. He called her, and again, in a shadowy Old Testament way, Old Covenant way, pointing her to ultimately the Messiah, and she believed. And the same thing can be said of the people of Nineveh. Going off what he just said about Jonah, Jesus points to the people who did follow the sign of the Savior. Jonah went to the people of Nineveh. We're going to see this next time. He went to the people of Nineveh, and he preached Ultimately, faith and repentance, conformity to the Word of God. And the people responded. They repented. Now, here's a scary part. Jesus said in verse 31, someone greater than Solomon is here. Same thing in the end of verse 42. Someone greater than Jonah is here. What he's saying is, is that he's sort of picturing a court scene at the judgment where God is judge. He's sitting in that role as judge. He will call witnesses forth. And one witness, for instance, will be the Queen of Sheba, someone who got this shadowy picture in the Old Testament times, and yet she believed. Another group of witnesses will be the Ninevites, who again, got a shadowy, incomplete picture, but they believed and repented and followed after the truth of God. And these people had the real thing. They had Jesus preaching to them, doing His miracles, eventually dying and rising from the dead. Christ giving evidence and preaching in person to these people, and yet you people, you in this wicked and evil generation still don't believe. 
So these people, among others, will stand in testimony against you. The implication is, like what he said about Bethsaida and Chorazin and Capernaum, they have the Messiah, they hear the Messiah, their sentence will be even greater. Their judgment will be even worse. What about today? We have even more. We have the rest of the story. We even have the end of the book, which is the end of history. We have the complete revelation of God to us, to mankind, in our hands, on our shelves, and yet it collects dust for most of us. We don't go to the Word of God, which is to say we don't believe. And the sad truth is if you don't believe, repent, live a life in conformity to the Word of God, you'll stand in that judgment just as the people of Jesus' generation, that wicked and evil generation, as these witnesses are brought forth and you're judged. Well, I hope we understand a little better the broader picture of the message of Jonah. Jesus gives us, in His kindness, gives us some principles by which we can understand the Bible, tools that we can understand the Bible, and how Jesus, His own life, was a fulfillment ultimately of all these prophets who had gone before. And then He showed us, even in His own words and His own ministry, how we are to respond to the story of Jonah. It's the way we respond to the gospel and all of biblical truth. We have faith, we believe it, we repent, and we follow. Let's pray that God would give us grace to do just that. Father, we thank You so much for what You've given us. We do ask for the grace and ability to respond to Your Word, to Your truth. We pray that we would commit our lives to understanding and following Your truth as it is revealed in Scripture. Indeed, Your Word is all we need for life and godliness. And through Your Word, You equip us adequately for every good work. And so we pray that we would look to this, we would believe and be transformed and be conformed, our minds being renewed by Your Word. I pray this would be especially true for those who have not yet repented. Perhaps you're speaking through your spirit, you're regenerating their heart even now. You're awakening them to the truth of their sin and of the answer of the gospel. And Lord, we pray that they would have faith and build their lives around Christ even now. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, please stand with me for a benediction and then you can be dismissed. Benedictions inspired by the passage we just studied. Now may we go in joy and in peace, knowing that if we heed the sign of Jonah, that is, submit to the truth of the gospel, we will inherit eternal life and live now and forevermore in that hope. Amen.